I hope this, uh, I hope I find you well in spirit. And I will say, as far apart as we are, um, the hope is we can be united in the Lord. And, you know, it comes to my mind, this idea of being united in the Lord is all the more important when we see many of the things that are on the news right now, the riots, the, what seems to me like police brutality. I'm, uh, I don't know how else to, to call what I've seen. And I just want to say something about that. I mean, and from my own heart, and I know, by the way, I know that I'm not able to say enough um, to fix things, but when I see things like this, my, my reaction is one of grief. I react like, um, you know, you think you make progress and then something like this happens and you feel like you're two steps back. You begin to wonder and hope that things are different and then something like this happens and you know, you know in your heart that there's a group of people that you love very much who understandably will say there still are real problems. There's still are real problems. And you look and you go, there are real problems. Um, the world is not as it should be. And maybe we can just sit in this this morning in prayer that God did not save us into a perfect world. He saved us out of a failing world. And you and I, we have been called to be on a ministry of reconciliation, first between us and God, then between one another, and eventually between God and the world. That's what we've been working through for week after week is evangelism, this idea of reconciling the world of the Lord. And so we see things like this, and we feel grief, but I, I want us to say that our grief, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Uh, we grieve because it's broken. And uh, my hope, my hope is that you and I, with each other and then with those around us, can be uh, part of the healing. So let's pray and then we'll set ourselves to scripture. Lord, we want to lift up to you um, those most affected right now by uh, the violence that they is being experienced and has been seen and taken place, Lord, we, it's times like this that we are, uh, we pray to a God of justice and we remind ourselves that we're in need of a God of mercy. So Lord, uh, we give vengeance to you and we remind ourselves that we're ministers of grace. Lord, we pray to the one who is making all things right. And in due time, Lord, this world will rest again. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you turn with me to Acts 17? We're going to uh, follow along with Paul today. Uh, both campuses, we've been working through evangelism. At both campuses, we've done a lot of thinking about the woman at the well. But today, I want us to think about... Uh, Paul the Apostle and uh, how it is that he does what he does and there's something that happens when you when you watch somebody who's really really good at what they do um, you if you really want to be like them more is gained by figuring out what motivates them and how they think than actually kind of writing down what they do writing down what they do is sort of 
getting the lighter side. It's getting the method, but not really the, the motivation. And so uh, I'll give you an example. When I was learning to fly, um, and as a lieutenant, when you learn to fly, you're, you're, you're not good at anything. You're just, you're bad. You're just bad. And in order to teach a young person how to fly in a, in a somewhat challenging environment, you end up learning uh, steps, rote steps and procedures that you do. If the weather's like this, I'm going to do this. If my flight lead actions in that direction, I'm going to count to 15 and go this way. There's very, it's very, very particular, prescribed, procedural. That's how it is when you're not good. And then you get better. And as you get better, something happens. The procedures that you learn, the steps and the roteness of it all, that starts to go away and it gets replaced with uh, a phrase like, well, it depends. What am I gonna do if he does that? Well, it depends. Because you now have a, a grander, deeper, more full sense of the environment around you and what you're trying to do. In other words, you have the wisdom and the motivation and you're staring at the right things to make the right decisions. And that advances us past step one, step two, step three. It gets us beyond the recipe to really doing what we've always wanted to do. And that's what I want us to do today is we look at Paul and we sort of uh, wrestle with and examine him uh, on mission. I don't want us to walk away with, well, first I'm gonna do that, and then I'm gonna do that, and then I'm gonna do that because Paul did it. I want us to get to why did Paul do what he did? What's working in Paul to make him do what he did so that you and I in different circumstances, in different settings, can behave in a way that's pleasing to God like Paul did. That's the goal. So with that said, I want to talk a little bit about how is it that Paul gets to Athens, because it matters. Uh, it is going to be Paul's second missionary journey that he sets out on. So he's been on one, and he's now setting out on his second missionary journey. And it's not very far down the road that his plan goes out the window. So Paul's traveling through what today we would call Turkey. He's traveling through Turkey, and the first thing he does is visit the churches that he planted on his first missionary journey. And then after that point, his goal is to evangelize the coastal cities of Turkey. Um, and that's where uh, the, he is prevented, it says in Scripture. His plan is thwarted. In fact, he wants to go to these coastal cities, but what actually ends up happening is this one night he has a vision, and the vision is of a person calling him over to Macedonia. So he wakes up, and instead of doing what he had planned, he goes to Macedonia, finds himself in a town called Philippi, preaches the gospel. Some people respond, but then trouble happens. So there's this work of God happening. He went where God told him and did what God told him to do, and the next thing you know, trouble happens. He gets beaten imprisoned, and ultimately asked to leave Philippi. So he goes from Philippi to another city in, in Macedonia called Thessalonica, and he does the same thing. He preaches the gospel. Some people begin to respond, but then trouble happens. And so he sort of gets kicked out of Thessalonica. So he goes to the next town in Macedonia, and guess what? He tries the same thing. He preaches the word. There's some initial response, but then then trouble happens, and he actually gets rushed out or evacuated out of Berea, and he finds himself in Athens. 
And all along the way, by the way, he's been traveling with a missionary team. So it's been uh, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And Luke, by the way, is sort of an invisible partner in all this. He's probably more like Paul's assistant and physician than part of the missions team. So you have Paul, Silas, and Timothy going on mission all around. But when he gets kicked out of Berea and sent to Athens, actually what he does is Paul, Silas, and Timothy get sent back into Macedonia. When you, when you read the Bible and you try to put the pieces together, the impression you get is that there was a real fear in, with Paul and the team that all the work they had been doing in, in Philippi and in Thessalonica and Berea, that it was, all, it was all for nothing. That if they don't go back and try to shore it up, it might be a total failure. So what we find ourselves, when we find Paul in Athens, he's there alone. Silas and Timothy are trying to repair or salvage whatever work might have begun, but Paul is alone in Athens. He never planned to go there. This is not part of his strategy. And behind him is this fear that everything he's done thus far will not survive. I guess what I want to say is, is Athens we should not see Athens as the next step in the plan. He's not in Athens in order to share the gospel. He's in Athens to recover, is what it seems like, to sort of get things together, to recollect, because it's been so difficult over the past several weeks. So that's how we find Paul in Athens. And when I say that is because I don't want us to sort of blow through what Paul does by saying, well, yeah, he's a missionary. He's on a missions trip. He's actually not right now. Right now he's all by himself kind of in respite uh, uh, after what has been up to this point, at least to him, a fairly unsuccessful missionary journey. Okay, let me read the first five or so verses here. I'm going to be in chapter 7, verse 16. It says this, Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So what I want to do to start with is to ask uh, this question about Athens. <clears throat> what about Athens in our city? And when I say city, I mean kind of the generic idea of our city, our people, our culture. What about Athens in our city is the same? And what about Athens in our city is different? So I'll show you what I think is the same is that the city is full of idols. 
Paul looks at the city and he sees it's full of idols. When I read that, I feel like, well, our city is the same. That sounds familiar to me. All through our city, our life, our culture, all around our culture are alternative sources of meaning, hope, and identity. That's what idolatry is. It's an alternative source for you to get meaning, hope, or identity. And our life is full of opportunities for that, alternatives from the Lord. We have financial idols. We have sexual idols. We have fitness idols is the one that seems to be kind of a recent arrival. Uh, social media idols, right? The need, this need to find meaning in people following you or you being up to date with what's happening in someone else's life. That's, that's real. We have these big red and blue political idols that seem to offer a hope of their own. We have, we have been recently introduced to the, this medical idol. You know, it, it's clear by the way that America has responded to this virus that we thought we had death largely under control. We thought we sort of had death in the corner. And that's why we're so shaken. What I mean is, it's clear that Athens is full of idols, and it's the same here. Our city is full of idols. That's what's the same. What's different, okay? What's different between Athens and us? I would say it's in the second half of that reading. Uh, in Athens, there seems to be an eagerness to process new ideas and new thoughts. That feels different than my city. That's not how it feels for me. And I don't think we would describe our culture that way, right? We, in our culture, we have very diverse populations, but we do not cross thought borders very easily at all. Like you have people who have very, very divergent views of how, how something is or how something ought to be. But in our culture, we're not really encouraged. There really are not reasonable bridges of discourse for us to cross and kind of understand and debate and, and, and work it out together. There's not these places like the Areopagus where someone says, you don't think the way I think, come with me. We all wanna hear why you think the way you think. That does not feel like my city. In fact, I think in our city, we've actually grown to become wary or threatened by this kind of discourse. It's a very, a very different city in my mind. For us, we have high, high freedom in what we think and low, low measures of discourse. Really interesting. We have huge amounts of self-confidence in what we believe and yet a strong unwillingness to test it. What's the same as the idolatry? What's different is uh, the way ideas are processed. But here's some irony that I want us to see, okay? That said, all of that said, here's the irony. In the way that we're the same as Athens, I'm struck by how different our behavior is. And in the ways that we're different from Athens, 
I have to wonder, does that really end up making much of a difference at the end of the day? Let me, let me show you what I mean. It, in the way that we're the same, if our city is so similar to Athens in its idolatry, why do we not share the gospel like Paul shared the gospel? That's the question. If we're so similar, do you realize why Paul shares the gospel? He sees the idolatry and the grief of seeing the idolatry moves him to preach the gospel. This is where it's important to remember, Paul did not come to Athens on mission. This is not part of the plan. He's not even with his team. He was just being himself. And when he saw the idolatry, it moved him to preach. Why don't we do that? I think we don't share because we are numb. I think we're numb in many ways to the world around us. And I think we're numb to the spirit that's in us. By this, I mean uh, you and I, and let's just say this kind of prudentially, you and I, we share in many of the idolatrous natures as our city. In other words, we love the things our city loves. So when we see the things our city does, we don't grieve the way that Paul grieves. Paul grieves because the city is doing things, the city is lost in wickedness and he sees it for what it is. We are attracted in many ways to this very same wickedness, so we're numb to it. We don't despair for the city because there's no disparity between us and the city. That's what I'm saying. When your hope is in idolatrous things, when your energy is poured into alternative meaning, places of meaning, when your ambition is invested in something other than the kingdom. I mean your real ambition and your real motivation and your real energy. When all of that, all of sort of who you are is really being pushed into some other corner of this life, then when it gets to the subject of God's kingdom, you're numb, you're tired, you're distracted. You're diverted. This is why we don't share. Same city. Why don't we share? You know, another way that we could be numb is numb in the spirit. Numb to the power of the spirit. Numb, numb to the life of the spirit that of God that's in us. Numb to the notion that we what we might have done. And I'm very familiar with this. We admit there's a spirit. Sort of we have this very... Christian sounding view of the spirit. We say all the right things about the spirit, but in reality, in reality, for many of us, we think the work of the spirit is essentially done. The Lord, the spirit walked us to through our conversion experience and now we believe that Jesus has died and resurrected and we have faith that uh, we're gonna go to heaven and all those things. And so the work of the spirit's complete when in reality, the spirit was only just getting started with you. Life in the Spirit is not about getting saved. Life in the Spirit is about leaning, entrusting yourself to the Spirit. And I think we're numb to that too. I think there are many people, many Christians who like God and they believe in Jesus, but they do not really live by faith. They may, if they were cornered, have to admit that they hate 
They really long for Christianesque stability. A manageable life that looks Christian. Kind of like a Christian in maintenance mode where, you know, the work is done and you're just, you're holding. And what I'm suggesting is, if you're that numb to the spirit on the inside, then you're going to look at the, even if your heart breaks for the world around you, for the city around you, even if you see the idolatry around you, you have so little spirit in you that you feel like you have an impotent spirit for the city. You can't give what you don't have. This is why we don't share. There's a numbness. We should ask, because Paul is not on mission right now. We should ask, if our city is so similar, then why is our behavior so different? If the worlds are the same in this way, why are our words so different? Here's another irony. It has to do with the difference of, of, of Athens. In the way that our cities are different, this idea of discourse, the way that Athens is so ready for discourse, that even though our cities are so different, I find myself asking, really asking, at the end of the day, what difference does that make? What difference does it really make? For one, it's not why Paul chooses to speak. Paul doesn't choose to share the gospel because Athens is interested in new ideas. Paul chooses to share the gospel, gospel because he's grieved at the wickedness of the city, the lostness of the city, the brokenness of the city. And, and what I'm saying is, is the nature of the city and ideas is just is happenstance to why Paul shares. So I have to ask, so the city's different. What difference does it make? Secondly, I'm not sure at the end of the day if Athens if Paul's city is any better off than our city. I'm not sure if ultimately it's an Ampton advantage. Look at verse 21. I mean, verse 21 sounds distinctly negative to me. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. You know, I guess you might say on one side it's positive because they want to hear what Paul has to say. On the other side, it sounds negative because they may only be interested in what Paul has to say because it's new. Like, they might be far more prone, for all that our city isn't, they might be far more prone to become disinterested in the gospel simply because they're bored with it. It's not new. They might be moving on to the next trendy idea. In the ways that our cities are the same, I'm challenged by how different we are. And I think it's because we're numb. And in the ways that our city's different, I, I have to say, if we really want to get to the motivations, like beyond the method, to the motivation, I'm really not sure it makes that much of a difference. I'm not sure that the cultural distinctives of our city or that city or any city for that matter, I'm not sure that that has any real bearing as to whether we share whether or not we share, maybe how, but not whether. The Great Commission. The Great Commission does not say go, make disciples of 
interested peoples and nations. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say go to friendly peoples. Go to people who get you. In fact, the assumption, the entire assumption we should have as Christians is that everywhere we go, everywhere we go where we bring the gospel, that there is some level of cultural hostility to us bringing the gospel there. There may be some way in, but then we're going to have trouble coming out. I mean, there's some win and some loss. There's some way that that culture is postured to be hostile to the good news of Jesus Christ because the world is falling. The world is in a riot against the Lord. Okay, this is why, and we're going to look at the message he preaches here. This is why I am interested in sort of the motivation and the wisdom of Paul and not simply like, what did he share? Because our city's different. Uh, so I want to know how it is he thinks. So let's take a second. I want to read, uh, I want to read a sermon. So I'm going to read 22 through the end of the chapter. And then we'll talk about it a little bit. So they say, come to the Areopagus, tell us your ideas. And here's what he says. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined and allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that we are divine, uh, that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So with Paul in mind, let's ask, how does Paul approach the problem here? And the first thing that I, I see is <clears throat> that he looks for the open door. What I mean to say is, in the sermon, what we see is that Paul grabs onto 
grabs onto um, a respectful, dignifying place of agreement to start. Like, I look around and I see that you're all very religious. I see that you're religious people. You know, I can imagine a missionary going into a tribe in the darkest jungles of Africa and seeing all of their idol worship or all of their animism or all of their pagan practice. And one missionary could be like, how dare you do all of this wickedness? And another missionary saying, you know what? I can see that you guys are searching. I can see that you're very religious and that you're looking for God. And I've, I am here to tell you about a God that you've been looking for. So you see how Paul starts? He seems to walk through, right? He doesn't just come out and judge them. He doesn't say, I saw you, there's a statue to an unknown God. You really shouldn't have gods. He sees, I see you're searching. I see you're searching. There's this, he looks for this open door of agreement. That feels to be a value. That feels like deeply useful to me and to you if we were really going to try to reach others if our heart really broke for the idolatry of the city and if we really leaned into it this shows that sort of love is leading paul the whole time he's not trying to judge them he's saying there's ways that you are already looking for the god that i'm bringing i want to tell you about that's verses 22 through 31. Then you get to actually what ends up being the largest part of the whole sermon, verses 24 through 29, in which for five, in five verses, 24 through 29, Paul essentially hammers one big idea, which is sort of the nature of God. There is a God, he says, a God who's created everybody, one God for all of humanity. And he says, and this God is not a God who has a house like a temple, He's not a God who's fashioned by the hands of men. He's not the kind of God that can be represented in the form of an idol. He is a great God. And what Paul's doing, so he, Paul walks through, kind of walks through the open door, the, the place of agreement that he might connect with. He has this respectful way. In fact, even in this sermon, he quotes their writings twice. He quotes their familiar philosophers twice he does this. There's this way of befriending them in the places of agreement. But then you find in this other area, the place that Paul spends the most time is in the place where they need the most help. The idea of God. Athens was a unique setting. So it was a city full of idols. Uh, so everywhere you went, you could find this just rank idolatry. But at the same time, notice who listens most to Paul are the philosophers. So philosophers are people, tended to be people at the time who sort of left idolatry behind. They were people who were serious about the truth. And they really wanted to find, really wanted to find what's true. And they looked at idolatrous worship as pedestrian, as... Uh, silly superstitions they had a lot of those views and Paul comes in so in other words they were leaving God entirely in order to find truth if that's what God's like I don't want him. and then you had on the other side people who were caught up in this very pagan very ritualistic very fantasy storybook sort of paganism and 
and and Paul comes right into the middle and says, right in the middle and says, there's one God who made everything. He doesn't live in houses like that, but you can't avoid him either. He cares about you. There's a God who's personal, who made you, who cares about you, and he's holy. The body of his sermon is on that subject. And it's, I'm not really interested in his method so much of saying, therefore, that needs to be the body of your sermon. What I'm interested in is why he does that. And why the reason I think he does that is just in the way that Paul enters into the conversation through the open door, he also, as he's building, as he's sharing the gospel, he's repairing the foundation, the shakiest foundation of their thinking. He's going to the place that needs the most help. Paul is bringing God back into the equation. They had cut God out, the philosopher has, and he's saying, don't do that. God cares about you. There's times when in, we imagine sharing the gospel that we see, we see or we sense there's a place where that person is farthest away from God, where they're the most disalignment is. And sometimes for us, that's the place we're most careful about going. Do I really want to go there? I want us to see here, Paul strikes at the places that need the most help. He goes to the most broken places to talk about. Because he sees, unlike us, who kind of are numb to the brokenness of the cities, so that when we do share the gospel, we're sharing it because it's a chore, or because it's a task, or because we're supposed to, or because it's a ministry. We have all these lesser motivations for doing it. Paul sees the brokenness of the city and people dying in the wickedness, and his heart breaks. And so when he shares the gospel, it's a pure act of love. you got to remember, he didn't come to Athens on a mission. He's doing this because of his heart. So we see kind of Paul goes through the open door. We see that Paul goes to the, like, the most broken foundation to shore up the most broken foundation. And here's the last thing we see, verses 30 and 31. Paul shares the gospel, the inescapable basic gospel. He says, thus far, God's been patient with you, but now it's time to repent because he's appointed a day of judgment. And he's assigned that day of judgment to the man, his son who... He raised from the dead. You get these basic elements of the gospel that are here for us. What we see is Paul gives them the pure basic gospel, the inescapable basic gospel. Doesn't matter how what door he came in, it doesn't matter what area he really worked to sort of shore up. He's sure when he, once he said those things, he gets to the basic gospel, right? God has been patient. You're called to repent. The day of judgment is coming. Our hope is in the one God raised from the dead, Jesus the Christ. That's, that's the gospel. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether Paul's preaching in a synagogue or whether preaching in the Areopagus, whether he's preaching in one city or the next city. Every sermon you find of Paul or Peter, all the sermons were given in Scripture. We, find, we might find a different open door. We might find a different area that's being shorn up. But we always get to the same basic gospel. That God and his mercy has been patient. So now you're called to repent and place your trust and hope in the one God raised from the dead, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. 
If you are not getting there, you are not giving hope. Now you might say to yourself, well, what if that's not effective? Or if I say that, I will fail. Well, I just want you to know from the story here, Paul says it and he fails. I mean, for the most part, it says when, look at verse 32. Now, when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. You get the impression from this account that for the most part, people did not follow what he had to say. There were a few who were interested. We can almost name them by name. But for the most part, the Areopagus said, okay, we've heard your good idea. Next. Like the moment he gets to the resurrection of the dead, their interest level starts to wane. What I'm saying is, is if you're not sharing because you might fail, you're a very, very, you have a very different motivation than Paul, who often shares even though he fails. Paul's magnificently successful ministry is mostly unsuccessful. Right now, as he's in Athens, he is fearing that the church in Philippi, the church in Thessalonica, and the church in Berea are failures. That's how he's feeling right now. And yet, what does he do in Athens? He says the same old message that often fails. What we need to do is ask questions of motivation. We don't need to follow Paul's four-step plan here, or three-step plan. We need to ask questions of motivation. That's what we need to ask. Why did Paul speak? Because his heart broke when he saw brokenness. That's why Paul spoke. Why don't we? The goal is not simply to identify the open door. Rather, the goal is to be spiritually sensitive to where the Lord already has a foothold in a community. Foothold with a person. Lord, give me the eyes and the spiritual insight to see where you're already at work, where this person is already reaching out to you. And let I'll go there. It's not simply to address the foundational gap, but to give them the truth they need. To realize that any truth you can offer them, right? Any truth is, is a way of love. It's an act, if you have the right motivation, any truth you can give is an act of love. And your ministry is not about your success. But to know that if you are not offering the gospel, on the whole, you are not really helping. Like if your heart breaks for the city, then give the city the cure. I want to close us in prayer. And with, as we close in prayer, I just want you to have that person you might have in mind, that area, that city, that community. And I want us to start by, if you'll bow your heads, us thinking about our motivation. Lord, why can we have such a similar city and yet behave so differently? And Lord, I want to lift up uh, the, the ways in which uh, us as a congregation love the world too much or maybe caught in the same idolatry so that we're just not sensitive, Lord, we, or we've put you at the margin, so we have so little margin for you. 
for some here today, Lord, simply climbing out of their numbness, becoming sensitive is what really needs to happen. And Lord, I, I pray that we might get away from the excuse of context, that we don't share because uh, this, this culture is a hard culture to share with, Lord. I just, I pray that if we had the right motivations, we'd share anyway. Lord, make us sensitive to where people are already looking for God and make us sensitive to where the very areas that are just most torn up in their life and understanding so that we can come and offer the best help in the best way. And above all things, Lord, when we do share, may we share the gospel so that we might give them life and not simply uh, mark ourselves as effective or successful. This is our prayer, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.